tired. I've been told the last few sermons I've done sick have been really good because they've been short. So we'll see if I can keep it up. Um, though trying to get the microphone plugged in has chewed up my first five minutes. So uh, let's pray and let's uh, um, start in on our, on our message uh, this morning. Heavenly Father, I, uh, I pray that you'd be with us and, and just help us to focus on, on you, Lord. Help us to worship you with our, with our uh, minds, Lord, as, as we uh, just hear the word and, and help us to um, understand and, and take in and grow. And I pray that you would just, just give us your grace and your Holy Spirit this morning for that purpose. Um, help us to, to, just as we prepare for Easter next Sunday, help us keep our hearts and minds just, just focused on you and, and bring us into your presence. In Christ's name, amen. Um, this is part, I have lost track, um, but, but we are continuing in our series on, um, on the Great Restoration. This is the building up for Easter. It's the various ways that, that Jesus replaces the old systems, the old, um, the old, uh, uh, the old Jewish faith, the old parts of our lives, and, and gives us sort of this new thing. And I, I wanted, as I, as I start out with this, I, uh, I was trying to come up with, with good analogies. We're not going to actually look at um, the Palm Sunday verse until the end. We're gonna be, I'm going to be preaching on 1 Samuel, because I, I always like picking the weirdest verse possible um, and making people say, hey, what the heck is he even doing? Um, but we're going to be doing, doing 1 Samuel in the series so far. We've looked at how Jesus replaces the temple uh, with himself, where instead of meeting God at the temple, we meet him through Jesus and actually ultimately through the Holy Spirit in us, right, is where God intersects with our lives. We, we don't go to a temple every week. We don't have to sacrifice an animal. We have Jesus who is amongst us and, and um, so forth. And like, like as we kind of dive into this, I, I want to throw out my analogy here before I, I get too far. Um, years ago, when my wife and I were, were young and dumb, she was young, I was dumb. Um, and um, I have lots of nods, thank you. Uh, we, we made a bunch of dumb decisions. Did anybody make dumb, dumb decisions? Um, for some reason, when we were young, we believed that it was a good idea to get what we wanted and not pay for it. You know how that works? We didn't steal. We borrowed. Um, we borrowed from future Eric and Jess, right? And the answer was, well, that's future Eric's problem, right? Problem is that future Eric has come and gone, and he didn't like it, right? Um, what happens is, like, like, and you see a lot of young people do this. We accumulate owing, right? I have a, I have a student loan I'm still paying off from grad school, right? And that's future Eric's problem. It's now Eric's problem, actually. And, and no matter what I do in life, I have to remember I got to pay that, right? And it's, I got to pay that credit card. I got to pay that student loan. I got to pay that. And, like, we, we make decisions sometimes because something looks attractive or easy. Or sometimes, like in the case of student loans, I'm going to defend myself here, like it was just the best way to do it at the time, right? But we make decisions and we owe the future because of it. We become enslaved to the decision we made before. Everybody get this? Can anybody relate to this real quick? I, uh, I quit, like, 11 years ago, I quit smoking. Ah, that was the worst because you'd wake up in the morning and what did you have to do? You had to have a cigarette. Then you'd, you know, get out of work and, like, run to the car and head down the road so you could get out of work far enough, like, out of the do not smoke in this area area you know, so you could have a cigarette. And, and it was a miserable thing because it kept calling me back, right? 
And like there's that, those commercials, you really don't have a choice. I mean, you're going to do it. But, you know, it's, it's, it's that thing that I'm sort of enslaved to, right? And we all have those things. It's easy to acquire them, our debt, our interests, our hobbies sometimes. Even our, our family sometimes can become that, right? I would love, I would love to be able to drop everything and run off to, you know, the city for no reason, right? Jess and I, when we first got married, I remember we lived in Indiana, and we would say, let's go to Chicago today, just on a whim. And we would load in the car, and we'd drive to Chicago and spend a couple days there because we had days off, and we would enjoy ourselves, and then we'd come back, right? It's hard to do with children because they make going places less fun and harder work, and actually, honestly, taking kids anywhere overnight is like preparing for a deep-sea expedition. <laughs> but, but we have these things we take on. And as we sort of dive into the text this week, this section in Samuel is an example of this, hey, this is what I want. I'm going to buy it, right? And I'm going to pay for it forever, okay? Um, and, and so as we kind of work into this, um, there's a little history that's necessary. Um, just real quick, the Jewish people, they've come out of slavery from Egypt, right? You have this, this great section of history where the, the Jewish people come out of slavery. They travel through the desert. They get to the promised land. They conquer it. And then they've got about 500 years. It's one of the biggest tangly messes in Bible chronology is trying to figure out how it all lays out. But it's kind of roughly 500 years where there is no king in Israel, just judges, right? Um, and, and it is a cool title for somebody who has a job or a GPO. Um, and, and the judges were basically impromptu leaders. They would come into power, they would take care of a problem, and then they would leave, right? Um, or they would come into power and they would handle all of the like lawsuits, and then they would go out and fight the enemy, and then they'd come back and they'd be done. And each region of Israel was supposed to have its own judge. And there's this whole elaborate system in the book of Leviticus that explains this is how the judges are going to work, right? And the Jewish people didn't have a king because, anybody know the answer to this? God was their king, right? And the judges were supposed to be like go-betweens. They'd pray to God, and God would tell them what to do. And so they had judges. The problem was that um, any system involving people tends to degrade because people are sinful, right? They started out well, and is actually the book of Judges is a story of judges getting crummier and crummier and crummier and crummier until you get to the very end, and like Samson, I think, is the next to last judge, and he's awful, right? I mean, he's really big and strong and awesome and stuff, but he's not a very good judge, and he actually fails his life mission. And so, like, like it's just a story of degradation. Samuel is the very, very last judge, and he's a prophet. He's also the first national judge, right? Like things have gotten so bad in the country that no one is worthy to be a judge, like no one. And Samuel is sent by God to kind of reestablish the system and set things right, okay? And so Samuel is, is in the process of doing this. He... Um, um, is supposed to appoint, like, like successors, which he does, and we'll get to that in a second, um, but it doesn't work well. Um, so Samuel, this very last national judge, um, and we're going to start in chapter 8. This is where the wheels come off the bus, right? Things are, are going to go from bad to worse. 
Um, when Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel, right? Because there's a succession system in place. He names his judges, and the problem arises that the name of his firstborn was Joel. That was part of the problem. Got that, Joel? Um, <laughs> and the name of his second is Abilajah. Um, and they were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. So the problem that's existed all of this time is the, the judges are like all the men in the country become increasingly corrupt and crummy. And like they aren't raising up godly men. And in the process of not raising up godly men, like it means that their leaders are awful, right? Um, it's always funny to me. I, I read, you know, Christian commentators and everything else. They say, well, we need good leadership to fix the country. Well, no, we need to raise godly men, right? You win every election in the world, but if you don't have godly men, like it doesn't matter. Um, our job um, as fathers, gentlemen, if you have boys, our job is to raise godly men. This is the problem they have is they haven't raised godly men. Samuel is no exception. His sons take over and his sons become greedy and start taking bribes and everything else. And finally, the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons walk not in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. Um, this is something that was predicted. If you go back to Deuteronomy, which is a collection of sermons done by Moses at the end of his life, Moses gets up and he does all of these sermons, and part of what he says is, Hey, there's going to be a day when the people are sick of God being their king. And they're going to ask for a king. And they're going to get one, and they're going to be sorry. Right? And this is the beginning of it. This is buying trouble against the future. And by the way, um, how are kings picked? You pick a first king. Who comes after that king? His son, right? And so it's a very upsetting part of the book. I agree. Um, so they're saying, hey, Samuel, your sons aren't any good. So obviously this succession system isn't working. So can we have a king? See the problem? The problem is that they're basically doing the same thing that Samuel had done. They don't actually want what they're saying they want. They want a king. And why do they want a king? Because they want to be like the other nations. They're looking at all the other nations and saying, hey, they got a king, and they got a king, and they got a king. Can't we be like those guys? Um, and it, 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 it's, it's going to be a problem because they actually get a king like the foreign kings, and we'll get to that in a second. Um, now, appoint for us a king to judge us like the nations, but the thing displeased Samuel, and they said, give us a king to judge us, and Samuel prayed to the Lord. So Samuel gets upset. He's like, you guys don't want a king. Do not do this. And they say, nope, we want a king. Do it. And so Samuel says, okay, I'm going to go talk to God. So Samuel goes and prays because Samuel is doing exactly what he's supposed to do. Samuel recognizes that God is his king, right? And so he resorts to talking to his king, and he, when he talks to God, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Now, what they basically, what God says, hey, you know what? Do what they say. Um, there are times in our lives God will let us get in trouble. Has anybody ever been there? Where God will say, hey, this is a bad idea. And we will choose what we want. And the trouble that follows is trouble that sometimes will dog us for years. 
that will sometimes follow us for, for ages and ages. And this is an instance. Oh, I don't have my verse because um, I must have typoed and my wife is fixing it for me. Um, so they, they, God says, you know what? Give it to them. They're rejecting me. They, they, their desire for a king, their desire for this earthly leadership is a rejection of God ultimately because God is supposed to be their king. And this is something we don't have kings in our country per se, right? But each of us individually chooses things to, to run our lives, don't we? We might choose to chase after our own lusts. This is how my life is going to be. I'm going to chase what I want, right? I'm going to chase visual stimulation. I'm going to chase health. I'm going to chase um, success in my career. Um, I, I, for years, I've, I've watched this doing addictions counseling where somebody becomes like addicted to something like alcohol or pornography or, or whatever, and that becomes king, right? Because that tells them what to do, and that's just a rejection of God ultimately. It's, hey, God, I don't want you to be in charge. I'm going to choose my own thing. Which, by the way, is why AA, their solution is make God number one and let him control your life. When he's king, it solves your problems, right? And, and, but this is the opposite. This is them saying, we don't want God to be our king anymore. Give us a king. Um, so God says, look, they're not rejecting you, Samuel. They're rejecting me. They're rejecting me. According to all the deeds that they have done, from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods that they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice, right? So God tells them to do three things. Do what they're telling them, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So God says, do these three things, right? Like you're going to go and tell them this is what they're going to get. You know, give them what they want, warn them, and let them know what's going to happen. So they can't ever say, hey, we had no idea it was going to be this bad, right? Samuel is about to lay out his warning. Um, so, all right, we'll jump into the next half here. I'm sorry, tired, sick. Um, so Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and be his horse, to be his horsemen, and they will run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and reap his harvest. And he will make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. Um, and he will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. And he will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. Um, he will take the tenth of your flocks and you will be and you shall be like his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because your king whom you have chosen for yourselves um, for relief from your king who you've chosen for himself. Um, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. So he says, listen, here's what's coming. You're going to be slaves. Now, as soon as they left Egypt, what did they say? Hey, can we go back and be slaves again? This freedom thing's hard. We don't want God to be in charge. Can we go back? And, and Moses is like, what's wrong with you people? Come on, you, know, you don't want to be slaves anymore. And basically what Samuel says to him is, look, it's coming. You're going to do this, but you're going to become slaves. 
you're choosing to be slaves. And honestly, you can back up and almost apply this stuff to, to, to sin in general, right? Like sin in general dominates us. We allow our, our bitterness, like for example, and angers to take root and to grow and become something huge in our lives, and it becomes something that runs the show. It is in charge over us. Um, we, we allow our lust to take over. We allow our, our desires to become number one. Or honestly, like the, the recurring phrase in the scriptures we see is, um, um, and men did what was right before their own eyes. You know, sometimes just doing what we think is right and deciding that we are the law becomes a thing that wrecks us. You know, we live in judgment over the people around us, or we alienate our families, or we ruin our children. And honestly, you want to see a product of sin, like what it produces. Um, like if we fail to live in this, it ruins our children. Um, and God warns them. And in the end, they say, yeah, well, whatever. We want a king. And God gives them a king like the other nations have. And that guy was named Saul. And Saul was spiritually blind. He actually was lived about two miles down the road from where Samuel lived. And even though Samuel was the national spiritual leader, he didn't know who he was. Saul didn't follow any of the laws. He didn't know the Torah. He didn't know anything. Saul was like, Saul was a pagan. And he was just like the other kings. Actually, if you keep reading the book of 1 Samuel, the author intentionally parallels Saul with one of the wicked neighboring kings. And you see where they just do the same thing as, you know, the neighboring kings. Because, um, because they didn't get a man after God's own heart. They got the king that they deserved, not the king that they wanted. That's it. That was the Batman quote. Um, and Jeremy's not in here to laugh at it. Um, so we're going to stop there. They now have a king, and it's going to play out for the next, like, 800 years, right? Um, it is going to make their situation worse and worse and worse and worse. And everything God predicted is going to happen. And it's honestly, you want to you learn it firsthand, there are ways you can do this. Find areas of sin to live under, and you will experience exactly what they experienced. Um, misery and separation from God. Now, we're going to jump ahead. We're going to look at something in 2 Samuel. This is from the life of David. They have their king. The king, Saul, was awful. David followed. And before we jump into this, God, um, our God, makes covenants, right? Everybody knows what a covenant is? It's a contract. It is an agreement that God makes with his people, okay? And the king becomes a part of God's contract. And, like, just real quick, I want to explain these. Adam was the first contract that God made. He said to, you know, God says to Adam, hey, take care of the garden. Enjoy yourself. Just don't eat off that tree right there, right? It was a works-based thing. All you have to do is not sin, and you're fine. And what did he do? sin. You had one job, Adam, one job, and he ruins it. And so from there, sin enters into the world, and God solved sin the first time around by just killing all the bad people, right? Anybody ever wonder that? Why doesn't God just wipe out the bad people? Problem is that he saved some folks, Noah, right? First thing Noah does is gets out of the ark, sacrifices to God, plants a vineyard, starts getting drunk. And sin came with him because no one is good, right? We all carry sin around in us. If you meet somebody who looks down his nose at you, you are meeting somebody who doesn't know his real state, right? Because we are all affected and infected by sin. 
And so like, like Noah, he grounds the world. And he says, hey, I'm not solving the problem this way. I'm not going to kill everyone to solve sin. I am going to agree not to kill everyone, right? That's a good contract. If you ever make a contract with someone and part of the stipulation is they agree not to kill you, good deal. In fact, I often wonder why it's not in more marriage agreements. After Noah comes a guy named Abraham. God has nobody following him. And he picks out Abraham and he says to Abraham, follow me, move where I tell you to move, be my people, you, one guy, be my people, and I will be your God, and I will make you a great nation, and all the world will be blessed through your descendant, which is Jesus, right? God promises Jesus to Abraham. He makes his first contract. First Jewish person, by the way, was Abraham, right? He establishes a contract for a new people. And after that, Abraham dies. His descendant, Moses, comes along, and God says, we're going to make another covenant, only we're going to clarify what it means to follow me. And he has all of these regulations. Hey, guys, if you're going to worship me, don't worship anything else, right? If you're going to worship me, don't kill each other. If you're going to worship me, he has all of these agreements. And like God says, listen, follow the rules and you're okay. Don't follow the rules and there's going to be a problem, right? And how did people do at it? Bad. Really bad. Now, after Moses comes a guy named David. David's the second king of Israel. I know this is a long way. It'll make sense. We'll get there. So we've reached the kings, right? And Israel has a king now, a king they should not have asked for. They discover they didn't really want one pretty quickly because Saul is awful. David comes along, and God changes how he deals with his people. And we're actually going to look at the agreement. Um, one day David wakes up, and he looks around, and he says, Hey, you know what? There's no temple. I need to build a house for God, right? God should have a house. Like, God has given me so much. God has, like, blessed me so much, I should give God a house. And he tells Nathan, who's the prophet at the time, I'm going to build God a house. And Nathan goes and prays, and he comes back with a message. And we're only going to look at part of the message because it's kind of long. But God basically says to him, who are you to decide what I'm going to do? Right? David got a bit big for his britches. Right? I'm king. I decide everything. And God says, no, I'm king. I put you there. Don't forget it. Right. And so God says, you don't get to build a, a house for me. And basically it's because David killed like thousands of people in his lifetime in the war and stuff. And he says, you got too much blood on your hands. I don't want a guy like you building my temple. He says, You're, we'll build it later. He says, for now, I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do for you. And he changes the agreement because each of these stages, right, um, Abraham, God makes an agreement. Moses, God makes a different agreement and modifies the original agreement, right? So be my people, be circumcised, live in the land, you're my people, right? And then Moses, follow these rules to be my people, right? And then he goes on in David, he modifies the agreement again, and this is a big deal. Watch this. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord, he's talking to David, the Lord will make you a house, okay? Now David's in his palace, and he's, you're going to make me a house? That's kind of a weird thing, right? Um, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, meaning, David, when you die, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. And he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, in the immediate, this looks like Solomon, David's son. He's the next king. He builds a temple, and it's a really awesome temple, right? But there's something else going on here. 
Watch this. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And actually, for years and years and years and years after this, part of the coronation of Jewish kings was, on this day, you know, like, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased, was like God speaking of his son, the king. It was how they coronated people. But we know that phrase from somewhere else, which is, when Jesus is baptized. Uh, because when Jesus is baptized, if you're a Jewish person, you heard all this stuff happening, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased, you realize that God is coronating Jesus king over Israel. And so when it says, I will build a house through your offspring, God isn't talking about Solomon. He's talking about Jesus, who's David's great, 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 great grandson, right? So... I will be a father to him, and he shall be my son. Um, And when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with a rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men, but by my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And so basically what he says is, listen, when your descendants, when the kings screw up, when they sin, I'm going to punish them. And actually, way, the way it plays out in the long run is when the king sinned, everybody got punished. Got it? So if, you know, king, whoever comes along and he's a bad guy, the whole nation suffers because God changes the contract. He says, you follow the rules, all of you. And now he says, when the king follows the rules, you'll do well. When the king breaks the rules, you're in trouble, Right? And it goes really badly for the Jewish people because of it, because the kings are all awful, really, really, really awful. And so the Jewish people are punished for the king's sins over and over and over and over again. And it is awful. Anybody as a kid ever get punished when your sister did something wrong? Or your brother? I say sister because I had an older sister, and I was pure as the driven snow. So this king they took on, God modifies the contract according to their decision. From here on out, your descendant, you know, the king, will be how we determine punishment, how we determine your loyalty, and I will build a house for you forever. Now, what he's talking about is that a descendant of David will be on the throne in Israel forever, right? It was basically what this boils down to. That descendant was not one of his earthly sons because they only go so long and then they're all killed, right? <laughs> like, like at the time when Jesus was born, there was not a descendant of even Abraham on the throne. It was a pagan guy, right? Um, but it's talking about Jesus because Jesus is a son of God, right? He's a descendant of David, and he is king over all of creation and will be forever, right? We see him coronated in his baptism. And when we get to Palm Sunday, I am going to go a little long today. I apologize, guys. Quarter after is right now, and I'm going to go a little past. Um, The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast, this is in Jerusalem, and Jesus is there for Passover. The large crowd that had come to the feast that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord even the king of Israel. Now, what they're doing, this laying down of palm branches and this laying down of coats and him riding into town is what you would do for a conquering king, right? It was like a, like a ticker tape parade we would have, right? 
But in Israel, in this ancient world, you would do these things. When a king came in glory, having beaten the enemy, you would celebrate his arrival by doing this. And so what they're doing is Jesus is showing up. They've heard that he's performing miracles. They've heard that he raised Lazarus from the dead. They've heard all of this stuff about him. And they're saying, this Jesus guy, he's going to show up, and he's going to kill all the Romans and save us. He's going to be our king. And actually, they tried to make him king before. Um, this is from the book of John. Earlier in John, Jesus, like, leaves the crowd because they're about to grab hold of him and force him to be their king. And he's like, I'm not here to be your king on this earth, right? And so, like, they see him coming. They're like, yay, the king is here. He's going to beat the bad guys. We're going to be saved. Do they have any idea what Jesus is up to, by the way? No. They're actually looking for the same kind of king their predecessors were looking for. Make us like other nations. Make us strong. Make us powerful. Show the bad guys that they're awful. Kill them all because we don't like them and they're big jerks. Um, all of this stuff, but they have no idea. And actually, we said this a couple weeks ago. Jesus doesn't trust himself to them. He doesn't give in to this. Jesus knows his mission. He doesn't let them force him to be king. But he does ride in. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. Just as it is written, fear not, daughters of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. I have never owned a donkey. My understanding is they're not majestic. Is that right? Um, usually kings would ride in on war horses. And Jesus rode in on a baby donkey. Because he's kind of thumbing his nose at him and making fun of him, right? They want a king. He is a king but he's a different kind of king. He's a king that will die for their sins. Um, by the way, that death for their sins, if Jesus is their king, right, did Jesus ever sin? No. Jesus was a perfect man. He obeyed the law perfectly. And so according to the old contract with David, if the king is punished for the, you know, if the people are punished for the king's sin, if Jesus the king is sinless, and then he is punished for the sins of the people, then his innocence is transferred to them. The whole contract thing, God like modifies this set of agreements. The covenants have a purpose and it's to build up to this. It is the legal basis for salvation, right? And Jesus, their king, shows up and they praise him and they sing songs and they do all this other stuff and Jesus shows up at the kind, as the kind of king that he is. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. And the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard of these signs he had done. They looked to Jesus. They saw this powerful man, this guy who could perform miracles. And they said, this is the guy who's going to save us. And he did. They didn't do it the way they thought, right? What do we do with this? What's Palm Sunday? We are in preparation for Easter. Next week, we're going to celebrate that the Son of God came to this earth, and he took punishment for our sins. Every rotten thing you do, every rotten thing I do, every rotten thing that our neighbor does, all of it, Jesus took all of that on his back on the cross, right? And he did it as our king. And because he did it as our king and was punished for our sins, we're given forgiveness. Um, even though we're just like those guys, the elders, who demand a king for ourselves, right? God, give me this. You know, in election season, I swear, it drives me nuts watching folks say, this is the man who will make us a Christian whatever. No, right? 
Earthly power ain't doing it, folks. Right? God saves us by changing our hearts, by Jesus dying for our sins. Um, we all have tools in our lives. And my challenge for you this week, my application, what, what do we do with this? Is his the true king that God sends for us? Is his the true king that dies for our sins, that makes us whole and right and pure before him? Um, my challenge for you is to look at yourself and ask, what's king for me? What do I worship? What do I obey? What do I follow? Is Jesus king in my life? And if he's not, what, what do you need to do to make that happen? Money's what I worship? Is sex what I worship? Is family what I worship? Is work what I worship? Is, you know, entertainment or television or the internet or all, any of the other silly things that we worship? What do you worship? What is God? What is your king? And if it's not Jesus, like, what do you need to do to make that right? Because at the end of the day, like, anytime we sin, we reject Jesus. That's essentially what sin is. And that's what John boils it down to. Sin is rejecting Jesus. Um, we're going to close in prayer, and, and um, we're a little long. I'm sorry, guys. Um, but the microphone is at fault. Um, and as we go out today, I, I want to ask you, like, is Jesus your king? And what do you need to do to make him king? Heavenly Father, I pray that you'd be with us today. I pray that you would uh, just help us to make you king. Help us to submit our lives to you. Help us to, to follow you, Lord. Help us to, to look to you to, to save us from, from our sins, from our, our rebellion, our brokenness, Lord. And help us to, to have sight to see what we make king. As we make our relationships or our, our stuff king, Lord, I pray that you would bring it to the forefront of our hearts and minds and help us to Help us to put those things away and make you number one, Lord. Um, pray these things in Jesus' name.